And let's continue in worship by studying God's word, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. If you would, take your Bibles and turn there. All of you who are tuning in right now downstairs at home, let me invite you as well to turn to our passage as we're finishing up the book of Ecclesiastes in our series Vanity Fair. You know, this is a great section of this book, full of what you might call little chestnuts of wisdom, little statements that you have to kind of crack open and process to fully understand and apply them. But I will say this, just as an overview of this chapter, I don't think the theme of this passage as a whole is a applied wisdom or something like that. It's not you know, practical sayings or aphorisms meant to improve your life, you know, 10 steps to improve your life from Ecclesiastes 11. I don't think that's the theme here because there are some things that you know, but there's also lots of stuff that you don't know. And the theme of this passage is that you don't know some stuff. There are some things that you know. There are things that we're privy to as human beings. There are some things that God has revealed to us. Other things, we don't know. In fact, there are four places in this passage where the author says, you don't know something about this world. Look at verse 2 with me. Everybody got your Bibles open? Chapter 11, look at verse 2. You know not what disaster may happen on earth. You know not. Is that true? Was that true this last week when you had this massive volcano erupt next to the island of Tonga, shooting ash into the stratosphere, creating tsunami waves that were 50 feet high. Who saw that coming? We don't know. There's disasters that happen in this world that we maybe only have a few moments notice that's going to happen. So we don't know that. Look at verse 5. You don't know the way... The spirit comes. And then later in verse five, you don't know the work of God. We don't know some of the stuff that goes on in this world. That's true. Look at verse six. You do not know which will prosper. So I see the theme of this chapter, chapter 11, as you don't know. That's the title of this message. You don't know. You don't know stuff. The verb in Hebrew for know is yada. So you don't yada some stuff in this world. But you do know this. So Solomon, as he's unpacking this chapter, he's like, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. And then at the end, he's like, but you know this. You know something. And that's in verse 9 when he says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. We know this, even if we don't know anything else, that God is going to judge us, our actions. We know it. So let's talk this morning about some things that we don't know and something that we do know. Write this down in your notes as number one. We don't know the future, Harvest Decatur. And in light of the fact that we don't know the future, Solomon's going to give us, yes, some practical application, some, some advice about how to live our lives. And here's the first thing he says. We don't know the future, so therefore be generous. Be generous. Solomon says in verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, yea, even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. 
This is the ancient equivalent to pay it forward. Pay it forward. Cast your bread upon the waters. This means be generous to others with your resources. You know, if you remember last week, Solomon was talking about how we should interact with our superior, the king. And he basically said, you know, don't insult the king, not even in private, because the walls have ears. And the king might find out. And he might remove your head from your neck. So don't talk bad about the king. So he gives you some advice for how to deal with the superior. Now he gives you some advice for how to treat your subordinate. And what he says is, what he advocates for is charity and generosity. Cast your bread upon the waters. When I was a teenager and I would read this, the image that would come to mind for me was like taking bread and tearing it apart and throwing it on the lake to the ducks. Anybody else do that? I did that for a long time until they put up a sign, don't feed the ducks. So, but I used to do that and I was reading this passage and it doesn't really work because you feed the ducks, but the ducks don't ever feed you back. You know, they, they don't really pay it forward. But, but you need to understand in the ancient world, cast your bread upon the waters. That's proverbial for generosity and for liberality of spirit. Give broadly to others. Like, like when you, and the picture there is like when you put your bread upon the waters and it kind of floats in different directions, just kind of randomly be generous, spread it out to as many people as you can. And sure enough, someday you might find out that if you've been generous with other people, others will be generous with you. Have any of y'all found that out in your own life? Like, maybe not directly, but down the road, in some way you've been generous with another person and then all it's reciprocated. And, and would you know that God upstairs is seeing all of our deeds and maybe behind the scenes orchestrating ways in which He's being generous towards us after we've been generous to other people, maybe in ways we weren't expecting it. I think the opposite is true as well. If you've been stingy with your resources, if you are a hoarder or a miser or an ungenerous person, don't be surprised when other people ignore you when you're in need. Right? As an extension of this, Solomon says this, look at verse two, give a portion to seven or even to eight for, you know, not there it is. You don't know. You know, not what disaster may happen on earth. You might bring in a great crop this year. You might be living high on the hog this year, but next year might be slim pickings. Next year, you might have blight on your crops, or a tornado might destroy your barn, or disease might infect all of your cattle. The idea here is that disaster is unpredictable in this world. You never know what's going to happen. That was especially true in, in the ancient world of Israel, an agrarian society where they were dependent on rain. They were dependent on God's grace for their crops year in and year out. It's not just farmers in an agrarian society though. When my, when I was in high school, my dad worked for this company called Motorola. You all remember Motorola? Nobody even knows who that is anymore. But Motorola was this big, powerful, wealthy company, you know, and I think they invented walkie talkies or something. I mean, and then they, they did semiconductors and they did cell phones and the, and the money was just coming in and truckloads for Motorola. And my dad, when he started working for them, they would have these elaborate office parties. He would go and they'd be like, have like catered food. He's like, man, they, just have, they have money to burn in this building. 
And sure enough, you know, they were making money in the late 90s, early 2000s, but they had a few bad business ventures. And then, you know, the stock price started to tank and they started to lay off some people. And now it's like a byword. It's like a cautionary tale. Remember Motorola? Oh, yeah, that was like three generations ago in high tech industry. So my dad, he worked for Motorola when I was in high school. My aunt worked for this company in Houston called Enron. Y'all remember Enron? I mean, they were making money hand over fist, billions and billions of dollars. So the accountant said, but in reality, they were hemorrhaging money and they, they took a nosedive. You never know what's going to happen in life. You might have had a great job there and all of a sudden you're unemployed. You never know what a little thing like a virus will do to cripple human civilization. Who saw this coming? In 2019. Remember 2019? Like, you know, it feels like decades ago, doesn't it? Who saw this coming? What Solomon is saying here is expect the unexpected. He's saying be generous with others, be charitable as a way of life, because you might need that reciprocated at some later time in your life. Solomon says elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, he says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Solomon also says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, be generous to everyone while you can. Use your riches whenever you can possibly do any good. And what's amazing about this is, you know, this is not like a selfless challenge towards generosity. Not really. I mean, in some ways, what Solomon is encouraging here is self-interest. <laughs> You know, be generous with another person because you might, you might need that someday down the road. The generosity of another person. And just so you know, Jesus, the true and better Solomon, Jesus, the true and better preacher of wisdom, he said something similar. In Luke 6, he said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So be generous, Harvest Decatur, with your resources. Write this down as number two in your notes. Be generous, but also be industrious. We don't know the future, so therefore be industrious. Solomon says in verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Hmm. And all of God's people said, huh, what? What does this little chestnut mean? If a tree falls to the south or to the north, the place where it, the tree falls, there it will lie. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's take all of this apart. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. That's true. I mean, you can see that empirically. Even in the ancient world, they knew when it was about to rain. And, and in the ancient world, you know, everybody was a amateur you know, meteorologists, they had to know what would rain because they, no rain, no crops, no crops, you're dead. That's how it worked in the old world. 
So everybody had to know. Everybody was waiting for rain. Everybody was hoping for rain. Everybody could see when the clouds were full and it was about to rain. So there are some things in this world that are observable. There are some things in our world that are predictable. Other things aren't. And that's why Solomon says, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. You know, when a tree falls in a storm, you don't know which way it's going to fall. You don't know which direction it's going to go. And once it falls, it causes a whole lot of trouble. And it can, and, and maybe you can use it for firewood, but you've got to cut that thing up. Unlike rain, which falls and fills the ground with nitrates that makes the crops grow, a tree falls and it's, for the most part, an inconvenience. That's the idea here. And there's permanence to a tree falling too. You know, rain comes and goes all the time, several times a year, even in Israel. Trees, they come and go slowly over decades. You know, in my backyard, some of y'all have been to my backyard. We've got this great sledding hill, you know, and sometimes kids come over and sled down the hill, Alistair and his friends. And when they sled down the bottom, they have to navigate the trees, you know. So they came to me once and they're like, Pastor Tony, you've got to cut these trees down so we can get to the bottom of the hill. You know, these trees are getting in our way. And I told, I'm not, I told him, I'm not cutting those trees. Those trees are older than you are. And they've been here longer than the house has been here. I'm not, I love trees, by the way. I love trees because there's a permanency to the trees. They come and they, they, they grow up big and strong, but it takes time to raise a tree, doesn't it? To grow a tree. So the idea here, even in nature, is that some things are transient. Some things come quickly like rain. Some things are more permanent like a tree. Some things are transitory, other things are more permanent, and life and nature are full of both of those, rain and trees. There's full of predictable things and unpredictable things, too, in our world. Look at verse 4. Solomon says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Okay, this one's a little clearer. What's the picture here? Well, Solomon's painting the picture of a procrastinator farmer here doesn't sow because he's worried about the wind and he doesn't reap he doesn't harvest because he's worried about rain and so he does nothing because he's paralyzed by the unknown and that's not good you know in ancient Israel the best time to sow crops is when it wasn't windy outside you know so when you scatter the seed the wind doesn't just blow it off all over the place so that way there's no wind as you scatter the seed it evenly can be spread throughout your property so you want to find a day, you want to find weather that's not windy. And then, you know, when you harvest crops, you wanted to harvest when it was dry, not wet. That's still the case today, by the way. You don't, you don't want to go out there in the middle of a rainstorm or after it just rained and then get bogged down and then get your, your grain all full of moisture. So you want good weather. And what Solomon is saying here is that this farmer, he doesn't know the future. And it could be windy and it could be rainy. And because of that, he's procrastinating and that's not good. He's paralyzed by fear of what might happen in the natural world. The reality is, and this is what Solomon's getting at, is that, you know, life is full of risks. Life is full of risks. Life is full of indeterminacy and uncertainty. And you can't use that as an excuse for indolence or for inactivity you got to work 
You got to get done what you got to get done. You got to take some risks too in life. Future favors the brave. And by the way, that's not just a principle for economics. That's a principle in many areas of life. Is it a risk to get married in this world? Don't amen that too loud. I mean, is it? Yeah, it is. Is it a risk to have children in this life? Man, they break your heart sometimes, don't they? I heard Tommy Nelson say this last week, you know, kids, they end up brain dead about 10 years of their lives until they recover from it. That's normal. Is there risk in taking a job somewhere, moving somewhere? Is there a risk in starting a business is there risk in planning a church? Nah, that's a piece of cake, Pastor Tony. Anybody can do that. Really now? No, life is full of risks. R- life is hard sometimes. And you don't know what the future holds. You don't know with that spouse whether they're going to get leukemia someday or your kids. You don't know. I mean, we do the best that we can with our kids, right? And we bring them in front of the church and we make these commitments. And and I'll just tell you, statistically, your kids have much better chance than the rest of the kids in this world. Go to church, two-parent family, growing them up here, putting them in Harvest Kids. They got great chance. But there's no guarantees on anything. Some of y'all know that. Does that mean we shouldn't have kids? Does that mean we shouldn't get married? No, we trust God and we mediate the risks in our life as best we can, but we don't live our lives full of inactivity and full of procrastination. We don't live our lives scared of what might happen. That's not what God wants from us. Speaking of the spiritual implications of this, this is what Phil Riken says about it. You can read this on the screen. Is, you know, just, is evangelizing somebody, is sharing your faith with somebody risky? <laughs> yeah, it is. Especially in our day. And Riken, speaking of spiritual implications of this passage, he says, rather than watching the wind and the clouds, imagining all the difficulties and waiting for better circumstances, we should try and do what we can with whatever God has given us in life. Pursue the dream you believe that God has given you for your calling in life. Get involved in ministry. Show mercy to someone in need. Start a friendship with a neighbor and pray that God will use that relationship to lead your neighbor to Christ. Don't hold back because of fear, but step out in faith. Not faith that your own efforts will succeed necessarily, but faith that God will take whatever you offer and use it in some way for his glory. Amen to that. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. The reality is you don't know some stuff. You don't even know how the spirit of a child comes into the womb of a woman. You know, and, and you can see, I mean, it's evident right in front of you that the woman's midsection is growing. There's a child in there. Observable. But you don't know metaphysically what's going on there. You don't know how that person inside of that 
womb becomes self-aware. You don't know about brain development. You don't know. You don't even know the, the, the soulish components of what's going on. That's what Solomon is alluding to here. And, and if you don't even know that, you know, with your own wife who's pregnant, how are you going to know the deeper things in this world? The other works of God who makes everything. I, th- I think a few comments are necessary here, so let me talk about them. We know more than we used to know than Solomon knew about the way of a woman with a child. We do. Notice, if you would, how Solomon, he never refers to the child inside of the woman as a fetus or a lump of cells. Does everybody see that? We've got something in our day, praise God for it, called 3D ultrasound and 4D ultrasound. Isn't that great? So we know more than Solomon knew in his day. And yet at the same time, We don't know how a child becomes self-aware. We don't know when a child develops consciousness, how the brain develops. We we have hints to that. There there are some things about this life that we just don't know. And, And there are some things about God in this universe that we'll never know. For instance, what are the basic building blocks of matter? Do you know? We just keep finding smaller and smaller and smaller particles. And are we ever going to get to the end of that? I don't, I don't know. I was reading a book this last week, and they were telling me about particles. That, like, we didn't even learn about that when I took physics and chemistry. Like, like, particles that are smaller than the particles that I learned about. When is that going to end? Maybe it never will. I mean, we don't even know. They say they know how big the universe is, you know. Have you ever heard the estimates? I mean, it's just like, What? You know, billions and billions and billions. After, you know, after the first billions, I'm, I'm like done. Like, what, what, what does that even mean? It's so huge. And even if we knew how big the universe is, we'll never explore it. We don't even have time to name all the stars that are out there. And there's some stuff that we won't know. Is that a comfort to you? Like, there's some stuff I'll never know. Good. That means I'm not God and God's out there. You guys remember when Job was suffering and he was demanding of God an answer for his suffering. And at the end of that book, after Job demands, demands, demands an answer from God, God finally shows up. You remember what God says to Job? God says, Job, where were you when I made the hippopotamus or whatever the behemoth is? Where were you when I put the whales in the sea, Joe? Job? You don't even know where I store the snow. You don't even know how lightning is made. You don't even know the right questions to ask. It was kind of, you know, God didn't say this directly. He was maybe a little more courteous than you and I would be. What he basically was saying was, how dare you? How dare you, Job? You don't even know the right questions to ask. And there's... There's just stuff that we don't know. I could go a lot further down this road, but that's not really where Solomon is taking us. Here's the point he's trying to make. Look at verse 6. In the morning you sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words, what he's saying is work hard, get done as much as you can, when you can, diversify your labor, diversify your portfolio, Diversify your skill sets because you don't know what the future holds. 
I mean, you don't even know how babies become self-conscious. How are you going to know whether this business venture or that business venture will be successful? You just don't know. And, and you might think, well, that's kind of weird advice coming from Solomon. That's, that's not what you would think advice would be in the Old Testament. But you've you got to know in wisdom literature, wisdom for the Hebrews was, was incredibly practical. It was. It wasn't like ethereal kinds of wisdom, like how many angels dance on the head of a pin or something. They didn't argue about that. They didn't argue about, you know, can God microwave a burrito so hot that he can't eat it or some crazy thing like that. They didn't care about that. They cared about practical stuff. And this is wisdom here for a Hebrew. Be generous with your resources. Be industrious. Work hard and recognize the fact that you aren't God. There's lots of stuff you don't know and you'll never know. Do the best with what you have. And you don't know the future. You don't. So do your best to mediate risk and don't let that be an excuse to be idle or to be gun-shy. Take some risks even. Step out in faith. Write this down as number three in your notes. You don't know the future, therefore be generous, be industrious. And then thirdly, be joyous, says Solomon. Solomon says in verse 7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Even, and as I read that, you might, who's writing this? Where'd this guy come from? Now Solomon's all happy, happy, happy. He's been depressed this whole book. Now he's happy. Light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Don't you love the sun? Don't you love the vitamin D when it gets into your system? Makes you feel better. Don't you love, especially after like 20 days of cloudiness out there and cold, the sun comes up and you're like, you're singing the Beatles, aren't you? Here comes the sun, do, 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 aren't you? I sing that all the time. It's the best thing George Harrison ever wrote. And the fascinating thing about this verse is, you know, Solomon's talking positively about the sun, but you know, 29 times in this book, he laments about being under the sun. And there are other times in this book where he laments about being alive. And he says, essentially, I'd be better off dead. If you remember in Ecclesiastes 6, he said, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life good, life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Whew. Remember that? Remember those depressing sections in Ecclesiastes? I know you remember because I saw your face when I was preaching it, and all of y'all were like, you got to be kidding me. This stuff is beating me up. And now that all that depressing stuff, all that depressing talk, and here's Solomon, I don't know, maybe turning a corner in verse, verse 7 saying, light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Translation, it's good to be alive. A living dog is better than a dead lion, he said in chapter 9, verse 4. It's just good to be alive, isn't it? And here's what Solomon's getting at. Look at verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. In other words, can I give you my own kind of paraphrase here? Don't turn into a crotchety old man, okay? Don't be that curmudgeonly person who says, well, you know, back in my day, blah, 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 blah. We didn't do it that way. Don't do that. Rejoice in life. Rejoice that you still have life. Rejoice in life even if you have high cholesterol, people. Even if you got a bad back. It's just good to be alive. I read a quote this last week. It was about a man named Wendell P. Loveless who lived into his 90s. And Loveless used to say when he was older... You know, he said, I don't, I don't go out much now because my parents won't let me. 90-year-old guy saying, I don't go out much now because my parents won't let me. Mother nature and father time, my parents, they won't let me out anymore. But he was just happy to be alive. He was just happy to be able to be used by the Lord. Do we have limitations as we age? Do we now? Does that mean we can't enjoy life? Now, let me encourage you, some of the, you especially who are a little longer in the tooth than me, enjoy your grandkids. Enjoy life with them. Enjoy your children as best you can. Enjoy a good book, right? Enjoy food. I mean, think back to all the carpe diem passages in Ecclesiastes. He's kind of depressed sometimes, but then he's like, well, you know what? But you still should enjoy life. You should, you should still make the most of what you have with your labor, with your loved ones. Enjoy life as best you can, you know? In, enjoy a good football game from start to finish. That's my idea of a good time. That's like torture to my wife, but, you know, enjoy a... Enjoy going to church. Enjoy worshiping the Lord. Enjoy a conversation with friends. Maybe somebody your own age. Maybe somebody a different age than you. Maybe somebody younger than you or older than you. Enjoy the relationships that you have in this world. Rejoice in that. Enjoy a piece of chocolate cake and praise the Lord. And then make a joke about how many candles there are on the cake. And rejoice that you're still alive, that you made it to another year. That's the exhortation here from an old man, the old man Solomon. It's good advice. I was listening this last week to the world and everything in it, this podcast that I listened to, and they were doing this special on Eric Little, who's a, Eric Little is one of my heroes, Scottish runner, won the gold medal in the 400 meters in 1924. They made the movie Chariots of Fire about Eric Little. And someone once asked Little, what was his strategy for running the 400 meters? Because that wasn't really his event. You know, he was better with the shorter distances, but he won the gold in the 400 meter. They said, what's your strategy? He said, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can. And then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run even faster. I've been thinking about that quote all week and thinking to myself, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm middle-aged now. I'm at the middle of my life. 
Maybe I ran the first 200 meters fast as I can. Maybe not, but I'm going to run the, the last 200 meters of my life as fast as I can, serving you, rejoicing in everything that you've given me. I think this is heavy on my heart right now because Eric Little, he was 43 when he died. And I'm 43. You know, whenever you hear about people who die around your age, you're like, man, what have I been doing? Maybe that's the wrong attitude to have, but I just think that every, every day that I have, every year that I have from this point forward, I'm living longer than Eric Little. Each day is a gift. Rejoice that you're alive. Solomon says in verse 8, so if a person lives many years, if that's you, if you live many years, rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. In other words, enjoy life while you can because it's short. And you only get one shot at life. I know there's eternity and we look forward to eternity, but you can't repeat the life that you're living now in eternity. It's different. You can't evangelize in eternity. You can't win people to Christ in eternity. You can't redo your life in eternity. Now's your chance to make the most of it. So make the most of it. When I was younger, you know, it's funny when, I underestimated when I was younger the the tendency that you have as you get older towards pessimism. Anybody else struggle with this? You just kind of get this cynical streak in you as you get older. Because when you're younger, you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to conquer the world. Then you get a little older and you're like, I, I just want to finish without doing something stupid. Like that's, My goals have totally changed. And, and you get maybe a little risk averse and you get a little nervous and you get a little cynical as you get older. And I remember even interacting with my pastor a little bit. I was, I was a PowerPoint guy for my pastor when I was a teenager, but we didn't have PowerPoint. We had these, this overhead projector. Y'all remember those things? They'd turn it off and I'd go and switch out the sheets. We were real high tech back then. And I, you know, I'd have interaction with my pastor sometimes and I'll be honest, he was kind of grumpy sometimes as a pastor. And I, I remember thinking to myself, what's his deal? You know, why is he so grumpy? And he would preach these sermons that were really dark. And I, I would just say to myself, why is he so glum all the time? But now, you know, after pastoring for a while, 43 years old, I'm like, yeah, I get it now. I understand. I wrote this down a few months ago as I was preaching Ecclesiastes. I was trying to think through my own life. And by the way, it's been so good reading Ecclesiastes as a young man, thinking it through as a young man. Now I'm middle-aged, thinking that through as well. Some of y'all who are a little older, maybe you're reading Ecclesiastes with fresh eyes as well. But I remember writing out as we started this series, just, just my own personal struggle in the trajectory of life. And here's what I wrote. I said, in my 20s, I struggled with idealism. In my 30s, my struggle was with pragmatism. In my 40s, my struggle is with pessimism. So when I was young, I was idealistic, idealistic all the time. And that was kind of a struggle sometimes. In my 30s, it was like pragmatism. Got to buy a house. Got to figure out life. Got to figure out parenting. Pragmatism, pragmatism, pragmatism. Now it's pessimism. 
That's my struggle. I relate more to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Some of you are like, just wait till you get to your 50s and your 60s, Pastor Tony. Then you struggle with some other isms, like rheumatism. <laughs> yeah, I get it. And Solomon is saying here, as an old man, don't let cynicism and pessimism get the best of you as you age. Enjoy life while you can. Make the most of it. Enjoy the sun on your face each new day. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Remember that old song we used to sing? This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Anybody else sing that? That was so good. Let's wake up in the morning and sing that song. That's good wisdom in that song. Let it, how's it go? I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's good wisdom, whether you're young or old. And speaking of being young, all right, enough about being old. Let's talk about being young. Solomon says this, look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Amen to that. Because it's not going to last long. No, just kidding. Just, let's keep going. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. I mean, that's, what I love about this, Solomon, here's an old man. He's not cynical about being young or about the young. Solomon encourages the young. Enjoy it. Make the most of it, your youth, because it, it doesn't last long. And the Bible, the Bible's not down on being young either, by the way. The Bible says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. First Timothy 4.12. That was my theme verse in my 20s. Psalm 144 says, may our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Psalm 71 verse 5 says, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. That psalmist trusted the Lord even in his youth. Solomon says elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, he says, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible is not down on young people and not down on being young. And there's reasons right now, if you are a young person, to enjoy life, to enjoy what God has given you. Now, are there some dangers to being young? Yeah. Yes, there are. And that's why Solomon says at the end of verse 9, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. But... Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So write this down as number four. And this is not just for the young. This is for the old as well. This is for all of us. You don't know the future. Be righteous. Be generous. Be industrious. Be joyous. Be righteous. 
There's a lot of stuff in this world that we don't know about. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know. But Solomon says here that we aren't ignorant about this. We know this. In fact, the, the Hebrew here, know, in verse 9, it's, it's what's called an imperative in Hebrew. It's a command. Know this. Know this, young people, because God has revealed it to you. We know that there is judgment, and that judgment is coming. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So what Solomon is saying here in verse 9 is, young people, enjoy life, but don't do stupid, Okay. Enjoy your life, have fun, enjoy your youth, but don't chase after sin and don't be foolish with your actions because God will bring all of your actions into judgment. Charles Spurgeon said once, he said, youthful sins lay a foundation for aged sorrows. Is that true? Youthful sins lay a foundation for aged sorrows. Warren Wearsby said this. You can read this on the screen. He said, the best way to have a happy adult life and a contented old age is to get a good start early in life and avoid the things that will bring trouble later on. Young people who take care of their minds and bodies avoid the destructive sins of the flesh and build good habits of health and holiness have a better chance for happy adult years than those who sow their wild oats and pray for crop failure. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Peter 5.5 says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 119, verse 9, says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Solomon says in verse 10, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain or evil, that's another way to translate this Hebrew word, ra'ah, put away evil from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're fleeting. This word for dawn of life here is the Hebrew shacharut. And it's a word that literally, literally means black or black haired. So, you know, a Jewish young person typically had black hair. So in Song of Solomon, as the bride was talking about her groom, she complimented her groom by saying his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven, she says about him. That's like the ancient equivalent to tall, dark, and handsome. So when you're young, when you have the vigor of life, you have black hair. When you get older, black turns to gray. Right? Right? Not just black, but brown and blonde too. Turn to gray. And what Solomon says here is that youth and blackness of hair is vanity. In other words, it's, it's fleeting. Remember that Hebrew word hevel? It's like smoke just comes and then dissipates and disappears. And before you know it, you're 30 and then you're 40 and then you're 50. 
you get old and you do gray and you get gray. And he says, do your best to remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body because youth and vitality are fleeting. So in other words, don't do stupid stuff when you're young that you have to pay for when you're older. Don't get married to five different people in five different states and then have to send child support all over the country. That's unwise. That'll put you in an early grave. That'll put you in the poorhouse. Don't drive intoxicated with alcohol or with marijuana and get into a wreck and ruin your life or ruin somebody else's life. Don't do that. Don't live a life of idleness and procrastination either. Don't live in your parents' basement until you're like 35, addicted to video games and not getting on with life. Get a job. Get married if you can. Go to work. Live a productive life. Ronald Reagan said once, if you, avoid being, if you want to avoid being in poverty, finish high school, get a diploma, get married, stay married, don't have kids outside of marriage, and don't get arrested. Those are some really basic instructions in life. And that came from a man who was married twice. He made mistakes in this area. That's good advice. And know that for everything that you do, young people know people, God will bring you into judgment. You know, whenever we bring, we have baby dedication today. I love baby dedication. And, and whenever we bring these kids in front of the congregation, you know, I meet with the parents ahead of time and I say, you know, I really challenge them. Are you committed to raising your child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Are you going to teach this child to fear God? And, and I want to hear them say, yes, I'm, I'm willing to commit to that. You know, because, and it's not fear you. Like, are you going to teach this child to fear you, parent? I mean, it's good that your children should fear you. But I just want you to know there's a ticking clock on that, parents. And your threat to spank them is going to fall flat when they're like 13 years old. They'll be like, what? Get out of here. There will be a time when they won't fear you. And they, you know, they probably shouldn't fear you as they get past teenage years into their 20s and 30s. They should always fear God. You want to teach your children to fear God because they need to do that the rest of their lives. And so that's what they, that's what these parents commit to. And there's something ironic going on here because Solomon is talking about judgment. Just be righteous because there's judgment coming. And you have to ask, like, when does the judgment happen? Why would Solomon say something about judgment? Solomon, who at times it's almost like he doubts whether there's an afterlife that even exists. You know, he makes some statements in this book and you're like, does he even believe in an afterlife? Like what? He makes it sound like we just go into the ground and it's all over. Where's the judgment, Solomon? When is that going to happen? Here's, here's how I answer that. I think that in his heart of hearts, Solomon knows that there will be an afterlife, that there will be a judgment. And he said as much in Ecclesiastes 3.11, eternity is in man's heart. We will live forever somewhere. We will be judged for, at some time. And it's not going to be in this life because this life, judgment slips up in this life. Some people get away with sin. You won't get away with sin in eternity. You can't hide 
from your sin when you stand before God who knows everything. No sin, no matter how long ago, no matter how inconspicuous in our lives, will go unnoticed by the great judge of the universe. God sees everything. Everybody listening, let Pastor Tony scare you a little bit this morning, all right? Let me be the grumpy pastor. God sees everything, and he's going to judge you for everything. You might say, that's okay, Pastor Tony. I'm in good shape. You know, I'm a good boy, Pastor Tony. I'm a good girl. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with those who do. The rich young ruler ain't got nothing on me, Pastor Tony. I'll be all right when I stand before God. You sure about that? You sure about that? Even those of you who are raised in a family, a Christian home, be careful now. Because there's something you should know about what the Bible says about being righteous. I kind of set you up with that fourth point. Be righteous, but you can't be. Because Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. You might say, well, that's, that's New Testament stuff, Pastor Tony. We're talking Old Testament today. Actually, no. When Paul said that, he was quoting David. He was quoting Solomon's father. In Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In fact, some see an allusion to Ecclesiastes in Paul's statement in Romans 3. Solomon said earlier, sure there is not a righteous man on earth who does know, who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So let's just put this all together. If Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 11 to be righteous because God is going to judge us. And Paul says in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, not even one. Then what are we going to do? Basically, as we put the Bible together, we're all going to stand before the Lord and we're all going to be judged and condemned. Boy, that's, that is a predicament. What are you going to do? Well, the title of this message today is You Don't Know. You don't know some stuff. You don't know some stuff about the future. You don't know what's going to happen in your life. But there is some stuff that you do know. You know how you know it? Because God revealed it to you in his word. And I don't know a lot of stuff, but I know this. And I know this about the future. That there is an eternity where we will spend either in the presence of the Lord or separated from the Lord forever and ever and ever. And I know this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world and he took on human flesh and he died a bloody, gruesome death on the cross so that we might be counted righteous in his sight. And the Bible says that if you have faith in that work that Jesus did for you, then you will be counted as righteous before a righteous God. If you don't have faith, 
Then you stand condemned. So be generous, harvesticator. Be industrious. Be joyous. It's good to be alive. And then put your faith in Jesus Christ because your faith in him reckons you righteous before a righteous God. Right? Have you done that? Look, I don't know how much time we have left in this world. Jesus could come back at any moment. And even if he doesn't come back soon, you're not promised another day. Do you know Christ? Do you have saving faith? Pray with me. Wherever you are right now, every person listening, in this room, online, We are all sinners condemned before God. And it's only by faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ that our sins are removed. And we can move from condemnation to salvation. So if you're here this morning, if you're listening and you've never put your faith in Christ, now is the time to do that. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our actions. We're not saved by being a good person. We're not saved by being generous or industrious or joyous. The reality is you can't save yourself. And God has made a way. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So if that's you this morning, And talk to the Lord right now in the quietness of your soul. Tell the Lord, I am a sinner. It's broken your laws. And yet I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose from the dead. I believe. I confess him as my Lord. I surrender my life to him.
Lord Jesus, thank you for salvation that you provided for us. Thank you for making a way for us to be righteous. Not on our own, but through what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a way to escape the coming judgment. Lord, your grace is so good. It's beyond what we deserve. And we praise you and we thank you for it this morning. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together, church.